Hello, good morning. Today our guest is Nicholas Gilvey. Hello, Nicholas. How are you doing? Hello, Mr. Matthews. I am uh, happy to be on your show today. Okay, you're happy to be on the show today. Why are you happy? Oh, uh, I usually I like um, uh, being on other people's shows. It uh, I find it's easier to do it than running my own uh, show, which is the writer's block, uh, which you can call catch every Sunday on the Countercurrents D Live and Odyssey channels, and also in replays on the Countercurrents website. Uh, when you are the host, you're responsible for everything, but when you're the guest on someone else's show, you're just uh, it's just so much easier. All right, Nicholas. And the Counter Currents is an American publication. What is the objective of Counter Currents? Hmm. That is a very good question. I am not uh, the editor there, and I'm not in, involved in management. I just write for it, and I just uh, make uh, uh, produce one show per week. Um, but I think that the chief purpose of countercurrents is to uh, function as a magazine where the ideas of what has become known as the dissident right uh, in uh, English can be discussed. And uh, since it is modeled uh, from uh, in many ways after the publications of Grèce in France, I suspect that one of the purposes of countercurrents is to try to uh, create something uh, which is uh, similar to the French new right, the, the nouvelle droit in French, and uh, import it into the North American context. And you know, you have Greg Johnson calling his uh, magazine publication, which is associated with uh, countercurrents, uh, the North American new right. So that's something to think about. But Jonathan Bowden, the English speaker, called countercurrents the university of the dissident right. So there is an aspect of that as well. It is um, a, a way in which we can discuss these ideas which do not have many homes in the current censorious West. Nicholas, should one offer a definition to explain the dissident right? Mm -hmm. We definitely should, because dissident right is, for the time being, in my opinion, a negative identity. Uh, we are defined as not the mainstream, right? We dissent from the mainstream and we are politically on the right. So we know uh, approximately what the mainstream right supports, right? We are everyone who is on the right, but who does not belong in that category. So if you disagree with any of the tenets of the mainstream right uh, in the uh, context, especially in the uh, Anglo-American and Western European context, you fall under the purview of the distant right. And this necessarily uh, includes a lot of disparate political identities and philosophies, some of which are mutually exclusive, contradictory. Uh, and th this is because it is an umbrella term to house all of these uh, things which do not fall into either of the boxes of the uh, 
of the radical left, of the mainstream left, or, or the mainstream right in the West. Nicholas, the dissident right, should it adopt a program that is politically savvy or a program that is intellectually savvy? Presently, when I survey the dissident right, it is obvious that the movement is quite comedic. Countercurrent is a philosophical publication with some articles relating to science, but on average, I am not amused by entertainment. I'm a bit boring. I prefer scholar, scholars and serious academic works. And this dent right is a bit cartoonish. I really don't care about memes on Twitter. Greg Johnson, in one of his books, he argues that meme culture is creative. I get his opinion, but I don't care about mindless entertainment. And presently, the dissident right is like a comedy skit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess it is a matter of taste. Uh, It is a comedy skit. Uh, In in, in the early days, especially, it was even more comedic. And this is because it partially arises out of a reaction to a lack of comedy in the mainstream. If you look at mainstream culture, you realize that since 2012, we're increasingly not allowed to have fun. We are, we are supposed to be, especially if you're a white person in the West, you're supposed, if you're a white male heterosexual Christian person, especially, you're supposed to check your privilege you're supposed to re-examine your position vis-a-vis uh, the various oppressions of the non-white, of the non-heterosexual, of the non-Christian, of the non-male, not just female. Then now they have invented hundreds of thousands of uh, gender identities. And so as a reaction to that on the internet, the memes were uh, um, a, a way in which we could have fun outside the purview of this neo-puritanical regime which was imposed in the West after 2012 or thereabout somewhere when the rise of the social justice warrior phenomenon arose. Uh, and yes, it could be cartoonish, it could be like a comedy skit, like, or, in, or some people have com- compared it to um, telenovelas like the uh, Hispanics watch, uh, Colombian telenovelas in particular, they are very dramatic. Uh, But it is, um, people want to be entertained and the mainstream does not provide them with anything which is even remotely funny. So that is probably the reason why the online distant right is to such a great degree really a comedy skit and increasingly a a soap opera, a telenovela style soap opera. Politicians are known for rhetoric. Politics is about optics and I get that perfectly. And I don't have a problem with a politician appearing to be charismatic. And even though I consider myself to be a bit boring, I like satire. I really enjoy Family Guy, South Park, and other adult cartoons. But, but I get your point. Main, mainstream culture is quite modish and simply boring. So you, about five years ago, there was an article saying that salads are sexist. So I completely get your point. But when we decide to divert into the realm of 
politics and policy, what level of entertainment should be accommodated? Because remember, the dissident right will always be blackballed. If you give a joke, it will be construed as racist or anti-Semitic or sexist. So when do you say enough comedy is enough? It may be no, never time to say enough comedy, but maybe the comedy is for internal use only. Um, you are quite right that politics and philosophy and ideas are very serious matters. And uh, one of the diseases we suffer from in the modern West is that we treat everything unseriously, with a lack of seriousness, with... Uh, irreverence to the graveness of the matter as if being ironic or unattached will insulate us from the consequences of everything but politics is a very serious matter as we are recording this interview there are tensions between russia and america over ukraine which could lead to a world war that is a very serious thing right uh on the other hand it is never the sign of a well-adjusted, because we are reacting to people who never joke, who cannot joke about anything as dissident rightists, uh, there might never be room for someone who says enough with the jokes, time to be 100% serious. So this, this is a, we need to come up with a political formula which will balance out these two factors, these two facts that politics and philosophy and ideas and thought are serious matters. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we are reacting to an enemy, a paradigm, which absolutely despises fun as such, which hates humor, which hates jokes. Um, there has to be some way to strike a balance between the two. Otherwise, we cannot move forward. Let me give a brief commentary on the decline of comedy. So the Golden Girls, that series was revolutionary because it could incorporate controversies without being explicitly controversial. In society today, for a, for a series to be controversial, the gay character or the female character must explicitly express his or her political views. Comedy ought to be implicit. Art reflects what is likely to, to occur. Art can be a commentary on life, but it is more impressive when it reflects what is, what is likely to occur. So in this sense, art has declined tremendously because the jokes are no longer implicit. They're explicit, boring, and political. That is, uh, that is a very interesting way of... Uh, that is a a very accurate way of putting it. Um, I was just uh, listening to something about uh, the radicals in the 60s, and I'm thinking this inclusion of politics into entertainment, of political issues into, into, into entertainment, has it always been so, or is it just a very recent phenomenon which begins with the 60s when the radicals actually started penetrating into the um, various institutions of society, especially in the media and in the entertainment system. 
And we have come to a point where the radicals, they used to be funny back in the day, but today now, now they are completely in power and are therefore afraid of humor because humor is, well, it's the weapon of the dissident, uh, mockery, especially mockery of the hypocrisy, which is attendant to organized society, uh, is a weapon of the dissident. And the dis dis all the dissidents are today on the right. So in that sense, the mainstream has lost the ability to be comedic and it has <clears throat> left comedy in our hands as dissidents. Yeah, it's just like Chris Matthews. I'm not a big admirer of Chris Matthews, but Chris Matthews served a purpose on MSNBC. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. the elderly Chris told a, a, a woman that he loved her. It was a joke, and he was canceled. However, Joe Biden can say that a journalist is a son of a bitch, and people move on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the hypocrisy, it is so glaring. Mm. Yes, Joe, uh, Joe Biden can say that a journalist is a son of a bitch, and people literally just move on. Had it been Trump? It's... Uh... It's, it, it's a testament to who really holds power in society. One of the most important historical privileges of, the, for example, European aristocracy was the right not to be offended. You could not, let's say you're a European peasant and you walk up to the lord, to the count, to the knight and say, you son of a bitch. That would be grounds for him killing you. He would then have the right to justifiably kill you. Um, another uh, example like this is from um, feudal Japan. So the Japanese peasant had no right to be discourteous to a samurai, all right? Because the samurai are privileged feudal uh, caste in feudal Japan and medieval Japan. Another example, in Tibet, before the Chinese takeover of Tibet, it was a crime to be discourteous or rude to a monk, to a uh, to a Tibetan Buddhist monk, because the Tibetan Buddhist monks were the aristocracy, the ruling class of Tibet. And so, but conversely, it is not only legal, it is expected of the samurai to make fun of the peasants or the, the uh, aristocracy. It is completely legal for them to insult the peasants. Right. And uh, this might sound counterintuitive because Donald Trump, he was president of America. But even though he was president of America, uh, the real power of America does not lie with the presidency. It lies with the federal bureaucracy, with the media power and the entertainment complex and the large corporations, the intelligence services. And the president is just a figurehead. He's not, he does not really hold any power. But if a president is supported by the, these institutions, which are enumerated, then he has all the power and then he has all the privilege. And of course, Donald Trump, he was wildly prosecuted for you know, talking like a heterosexual man about women. And, uh, and he wasn't even doing it in public. He was caught. He was recorded uh, privately. But Joe Biden can publicly insult people and get away with it. But uh, even... So but let's... This is, this is uh, not so much hypocrisy as it is 
the power of the left, the aristocratic power of the American left. They are the ruling class. They have the right to insult everyone, but we have no right to say anything uh, to them or about them. I'm happy that you're referring to the medieval ages and Japan pre the Meiji Restoration. There was a modicum of difference in medieval societies, but if you read people like Fritz Kern and other and other historians of the medieval era, it is positive that even during the medieval ages, ordinary people in Western societies still had a certain level of dignity. And I discussed the issue recently with, with Ricardo Duchini. We were, we were commenting on hierarchical models in the pre-modern West versus non-Western societies and the, the, the position of difference. So even when Western society was differential, like societies elsewhere, it was still less differential. For instance, you referred to the medieval peasant and the noble lord. Yes, I get your point. But in other places, disrespecting an aristocrat or even ignoring the aristocrat would lead to serious penalties. In, indeed, yes. This is why I brought up the feudal Japan and pre-communist Tibet. Yes. Because these are these there is actually lack of deference to the Tibetan monk would have probably meant the death of a Tibetan peasant. And of course, I am a great friend of Professor Ricardo Duchesne, great respecter of his work. He is very right that Western society while still retaining uh, hierarchy is far more egalitarian and um, far more respectful of the rights of the common man. Uh, it, is a, it is a remarkable social technology, which I believe uh, goes all, I mean, in my historical research, I have managed to trace it back to Germanic kingship. However, uh, Dr. Duchesne, he has uh, traced it all the way back to the Proto-Indo-European steppe people, who developed the culture of aristocratic egalitarianism. So yes, you are completely right. I was, however, referring to uh, using it to demonstrate the status differential between a conservative in the West, a right-winger in the West, and a leftist in the West. Um, so Donald Trump will not have all the rights that Joe Biden has. Joe Biden has the right to call people son of a bitch. Donald Trump has no right to um, to even you know speak lustfully about a woman. This is forbidden for him. So the, I I am quite polite. I don't swear. That is not my style. But obviously, mm -hmm. since I reside in the real world, I understand how normal men behave, especially in private. So I was a, I'm still a member of a social club with distinguished men. And in private, they're a bit loose. So I completely understand the rhetoric of Donald Trump. So many were infuriated by his statement, grab them by the pussy. Of course, that's a <clears throat> that's from that that's a base statement. It's obviously I'm not disputing that. But Donald Trump was not employing it as a metaphor for rape or even to disrespect women. Donald Trump is an affluent man. 
studies show that women like intelligent men and they also like high status men. So the essence of Donald Trump's remark is that if you're a powerful man, women will literally up to sleep with you. That's his point. And, and under some circumstances, you can determine that you're going to sleep with them, them because they're rich and powerful. And Donald Trump could be speaking from experience. I don't know. That is not he unusual was, for was women. In that to... respect, speaking from experience, yes. he was telling how a woman was trying to seduce him because he is rich and famous. Right. He was yes, telling so... this because I heard, uh, I did not hear just the the words, the, the bad words, grab him by the pussy. I listened to the entire recording of that. And the context of it was he was telling a story about how he took a woman uh, furniture shopping because she was um, flirting with him. And his point was when you're a celebrity like he is, and he was a celebrity long before he was a president, it's, uh, this, is, uh, this is a feature of the female animal. They gravitate towards men with high status and they yes. will tolerate behavior from men uh, of high status that they wouldn't tolerate from other men. They will uh, genuflect a, right. to, to rich men. Exactly, exactly. And, but, but then again, we can't fault the mainstream media for, misin- for misinterpreting Donald Trump's rather anodyne remarks because these people lack a sense of humor and maybe they don't even take science seriously anymore. There's a great movement to don't play sex differences. So I, I, personally, these days, I literally read the mainstream media in passing. So at one point, I read the upshot. The upshot is the policy section of the New York Times, and I would read the book reviews. The New Republic has excellent book reviews, but for the most part, I ignore the mainstream media because it's just too dull, and I don't appreciate dollars. But back to the point of the, of the discussion, this didn't write white working class people. Should the dissident right, right adopt a Strasserian approach? Should you package the philosophy as a philosophy to liberate working class people in order to get mainstream acceptance and upon receiving mainstream validation, come out as a white nationalist? Or should you be a direct uh, did, white did you nationalist? Say, uh, Strasserite approach? Yeah, yes. Should, should you adopt that approach? Uh, in reference to Gregor Strasser, the uh, Nazi no Leo, Nazi Leo, Strasser. Leo. Ah, the, the, that's Leo Strauss. Yeah, sorry. Leo Strauss, uh, Strauss. Yes. Uh, well, personally, I um, I don't think that political organization is in the cards at any point in the future. A lot of people, I have written, uh, I wouldn't say extensively, but I have written a little bit about this political or white working class people, right? Uh, I don't think that the core constituency of uh, people who are open to uh, dissident right ideas uh, is exactly white working class people. I think this is something uh as a lot uh, because a lot of dissident rightists they are informed by the ideas of maybe fascism and national socialism and these were movements uh, which class, ha- yeah. hmm? no you may go ahead i'm i'm sorry 
No, you're saying you're com 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 commenting on the fascist movement, and you said that these were movements, and I said middle class. Right, uh, but they also included large parts of uh, the working class in Germany and in Italy. And if you look at fascism more broadly, if you look at fascism as it was practiced in uh, uh, Portugal and uh, Spain, and maybe even you can consider the, the Metaxas regime in Greece fascist, uh, the uh, various uh, uh, manifestations thereof in Latin America, such as the Peronistas, this included a large uh, working class contingent. What I think that modern distant fighters are, are assuming is because this is the way it was in the 20s and 30s and 40s, it can be, we can now replicate this. However, the, a key difference is that the modern West, uh, America, Canada, uh, United Kingdom, Germany, France, anywhere in the West, there is no large urban proletariat, right? There is no men working in factories or mines or um, the closest thing we have to such an organized uh, working class group are the Canadian truckers. Uh, so truckers in America too, but now we are seeing the power of Canadian truckers uh, as they are driving toward Ottawa. If they could be organized, they could grind the entire country of Canada to a standstill uh, in order to have their voices heard. This was historically a major part of fascist and national uh, socialist political formulae. They would um, broker alliances between corporate power and union power. That piece of the puzzle is missing in today's um, world. There is no significant union power which can dictate terms to the state or to the corporations. Uh, in fact, you could say that the story of the later 20th century in America and Western Europe was the story of gradual erosion of the power of unions and their co-option by state power. So there is no, the white working class has no independent institutions and no independent power center with which to make its voice heard. Now, of course, I want to protect the interests of the white working class. However, uh, I'm not certain that the white working class would figure as participants in any future successful political formula in the West. They might figure as a protected class for which we have affinity, you know, but uh, I'm not sure that they can be effectively organized. Now, by the colloquial definition of what you mean, uh, working class. Yes, but let, let me make my point clear. I, I get what you're saying 100%. In relation mm -hmm. to the issue of union power, but by a Straussian approach, I'm saying that maybe the dissident right should have a latent message and not a manifest message. So leftists are deceptive. They say progress. They say that they're progressive when they're really authoritarian. So instead of being so filled with integrity maybe the dissident right should adopt a more manipulative approach. That's mm -hmm. my argument. Um, yes, the, I understand your position. Uh, I, my, my response to that is yes and no. Because 
there is a there are several groups which are trying to replicate the success of the left uh, in the in the long march through the institutions. And what we know is that the left did not was not a monolith, but had a radical wing and a moderate wing. And the radical wing never really uh, seized power. There was no so, for example, George McGovern was not elected president of America. Even though, and he was the radical left candidate. What were the leftist presidents of the um, of the uh, United States in the twenty in the later twentieth centuries? You had a very moderate uh, Harry Truman. Uh, you had uh, somewhat radical John Kennedy, and uh, somewhat more radical in some ways Lyndon Johnson. Uh, you had Jimmy Carter, whose administration was a very big failure, and you had Bill Clinton, right? And then you had Obama, right? So these are all the leftist presidents of America in the later 20th century, uh, after the Second World War. Uh, they did not accomplish uh, much. In fact, a lot of the leftist agenda was accomplished under Republican presidents. <laughs> however, however, the real strength of the left came from the radical vanguard, from the Students for a Democratic Society, from organizations like um, the Weather Underground. These people who uh, they did not so much infiltrate the institutions as they were already the sons of the old school left, which was progressive and maybe a little socialist, you know, old school socialist. Uh, but this uh, this new identitarian, uh, anti-Western, postmodern left—they were the sons and daughters of these people, and uh, or the uh, intellectual pro proteges, and by their radicalism. Uh, see, this is a, a trick from Donald Trump, right? We want to buy something for fifty dollars, and you offer to the seller to buy it for ten dollars, right? And the, the actual thing costs $100, right? So when you haggle him over to $50 because your initial offer was $10, he feels like he won the haggle. And in fact, you, you just got it for half price because the real price is still $100, right? Uh, the, so the position taken by some of these groups, such as uh, the National Justice Party, for example, in America, or the Patriotic Alternative, in the United Kingdom is we are going to present our case as we want it, right? We want a nationalist state. We want the reestablishment of the nationalist state. We want to protect the interests of white people as an ethnic group, right? And maybe they're not trying to win political power per se. You're not going to see maybe Prime Minister Mark Collett or President Mike Enoch, but you will see the mainstream right, uh, as these ideas are put into the discourse and as more people start following them and as more influential people start following them, you will see the mainstream right following these ideas in order to remain politically relevant. So this is the hope. This is the plan of these institutions. Uh, it, it is not so much a question of uh, manipulation and deception. The radical, uh, all of the, all everything you can see to, uh, in America today, all of the leftism, all of the progressivism, it was very clearly stated by the radical left of the 1960s. 
And um, everything that really changed was over time, over uh, 60, 70 years, the moderate left followed the radical left and the moderate right followed the moderate left uh, until we got to the present situation. Some people in the dissident right think that by presenting themselves with, as you put it, full integrity, with this is the plan, this is what we want, uh, they believe we can uh, have an opposite effect. We can drag the entire overturn window a little further to the right. Maybe we personally will not win power. However, however, we can drag the culture along with us. I don't know if this is going to be successful, <laughs> but it is. But it is how the left succeeded. Okay. Well, I have a plausible idea. Mm-hmm. Westerners are analytical, Richard Nisbet, individualistic, trendist. They're high in openness. We are leak. Westerners are also lowering ethnocentrism, and Western culture is a time culture. It's also high in patience. The traits that emerge in the West are not unique to white people. Other groups can exhibit these traits, but they are overly concentrated in white Western societies because of gene culture co-evolutions. Economists, for instance, have written a paper on the evolutionary origins of economic preferences. So my suggestion is quite simple. The dissident right should inform people that the society that was built by whites is in their interest. People immigrate to white Western societies. They're migrating to New Zealand, America, Canada, England, and Germany. They're not rushing to East Asian countries, although these countries are successful. They're going to the liberal West. So as a part of the political strategy, the the dissident right should bring bring home the message that a society that, that, that the society that was built and cultivated by whites is even in the interest of minorities. White society abolished slavery. Under the British rule in Africa, slavery withered away. It withered away in the Ibadan Empire. It withered away in the Sokota Caliphate. So maybe white Western society is in the interest of minorities, but they just don't know it. Well, I'm not sure how much of white Western society is in the interest of, um, uh, well, it certainly is in the interest of a certain number of non-white people. I was thinking about this um, when I was thinking about segregation in America. And one of the things you will hear from a lot of people, because it's because it's true, because uh, it actually did happen like this, that the end of segregation in America uh, completely uh, or almost completely destroyed the black, black middle business, class. Yes, people say it all the time. Right, the black but middle let me, class. I don't want to cut you, was, Nicholas, but economic research has shown that the elimination of segregation policies and the creation of civil rights Laws actually helped black business people. So there's a strong argument that black businesses were destroyed because of segregation, but blacks don't want to go back to segregation. But you can continue with the point. 
So, uh, right, the evidence is that black businesses were destroyed by segregation, and this wiped out the black middle class, right? So black people in America, um, they no longer have a middle class. What black people in America do have uh, middle class standards, they, um, they will maybe live as token blacks in, uh, in white neighborhoods. Uh, and this led to me, uh, led me to believe now segregation because it is a um, selection pressure, right? We, let's think about this like uh, biologists. Let's think about humans as, as the animals we are because we are animals. When you introduce the selection pressure of segregation, you select for such uh, traits in the black population which lead to the formation of, uh, well, the behavior we see in the black middle class. So people save, they persevere, they open businesses, they try to become as much as possible self-sufficient. However, if you introduce the element of competition with white businesses, you know, this entire niche, uh, trophic niche, I'm using bi the biological term here, uh, of black people is wiped out and taken over by the white middle class, by white businesses, right? And further in the future, this happened in the 60s and 70s, today, this niche of white middle class proprietors is wiped out by competition with global um, corporations, right? Because they cannot compete because of a multitude of reasons. And so... By ending segregation, we remove this selection pressure of segregation, which selects for uh, the middle class type of black person, and we, um, we destroy the ability of such a black person to be formed in America. Uh, where I'm going with this is that what about the black person who does not... Uh, thrive in this situation, right? What about the black person who is, let's say, genetically, is of lower intelligence, lower IQ, higher uh, impulsivity, lower impulse control, higher time preference, you know, he is not going to thrive in the segregated type of society, right? Who is going to thrive in the segregated type of society? Well, it's the black person, uh, the not even the talented tenth of uh, black people. So the one, uh, the upper tenth of black people, who can actually function in a white society, but the middle of the black population, which wouldn't function without segregation, um, right? Uh, every uh, so the vast majority of the black population in America cannot be integrated into white society right and from their point of view from their evolutionary point of view integration into into white society is the introduction of a selection pressure which discourages and prevents their proliferation because the rules of white society while without being explicitly racist right the rules does not say do not say no blacks allowed, but the rules are the way they are. Without being explicitly racist, they uh, discourage, they act as a negative selection pressure on the vast majority, maybe 90% of the, 
of the black population in America, right? And this is what the left calls systemic racism. They say, you are not personally racist as a white person. You are the system itself because it rewards low time preference and high intelligence and low impulsivity because it rewards saving and investment uh, and because it rewards being on time, it, act, it discriminates against what black people are. Now, the left will never say what black people are genetically. They will never recognize, they will not admit to genetic differences. But the reality of it is that no, the white system, the system built by white people, which is Western civilization, is optimized for white people to live in. And this is also true of the so-called uh, uh, high-achieving high minorities, right? Even though they may be wealthy, they may be uh, living well in the sense of economically, they, uh, there are accounts, for example, from Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans and Koreans that even though they are wealthy, they can feel the alienness of the culture pressing down on them. For example, the Western uh, habit is, of course, you, uh, the person you're looking to, you look them in the eye. The person who has authority to, over you, they're not almighty over you. But these are all very anathema in uh, East Asian cultures, and especially China and Korea. They are very heavily Confucian, right? And when we say culture, this is not just software which we can install on any hardware because culture is also a selection pressure and produces the kind of person who will uh, thrive in that culture, right? As a selection pressure, I'm still talking biologically. Uh, by the imposition of these cultural rules, we encourage some people's reproduction and discourage other people's reproduction. And over periods of time, which may not even be that long, right? We might be talking about two, three generations. We might arrive as a situation where only a certain type of phenotype of, of person can uh, actually exist in this culture. So I will not agree that... Uh, Western civilization is also good for uh, materiality. It is it is great for for for, for blacks and other minorities. Remember, this is mm -hmm. according to the, I said that materially Western civilization is better for immigrants, especially non-white immigrants. So people um, who immigrate it really to America depends. It depends uh, as as it is. The Western world may be materially better for them. Um, but I, I'm not sure that the Western world as it is, is a good example of what Western civilization really is. Uh, let's think about America from 100 years ago. Was it a good place for, would it have been even materially for uh, non-white immigrants? I don't know. If it was better for non-white immigrants over 100 years ago? Well, over was one, it? I'm not sure. Over right. 100 years ago immigrants were overwhelmingly from Europe, but based on what I do know, people from the Caribbean who immigrated to the United States on average were educated and had more exposure in interacting with white entrepreneurs. So there's a point in American history when people from the West Indies were seen as the Jews of the black world. <laughs> yes. 
but uh, there, there's a positive migrant. Yes, there is a positive okay. relationship between immigrating to a rich Western country and material stand, standard of living. Even if we go back to slavery, J.R. Ward, he has an article on anthrop anthropometric on anthropometric data. And his argument is that height, the height of blacks rose during their duration in the Caribbean. And we have other data comparing the materials living standards of elite slaves to overseer, overseers. So yes, on average, migration to America and other rich countries will benefit people coming from a poorer place. Yes. So... Yes. But, but I get your point another, completely. Another, uh, you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, though, completely. I understand though, it. Right. Uh, and so I will disagree that I think that uh, even though materially speaking, someone might be uh, might have fewer stuff uh, back where they came from. Right. Uh, the reality is that um, human uh, reproduction is not governed so much by material factors. Uh, I mean, within group factors uh, within group variability and reproductive success is governed more by status within the group rather than material factors and so it status within the group will be a more salient factor more more important um, selection pressure yes. and if you are uh, if you're the poorest person in a in a rich country you might have more material stuff than even the middle class of a of a poor country right but, but people you value still, social status you are the the last in social status in your in your rich country and therefore you will not have the reproductive success of a middle class person of a very poor country yes this is a so this is when we are talking about evolution we are not talking about material standard of living we are number we are talking of course about number of surviving offspring and if you are very low social status and unfortunately Blacks in America would be even lower social status today without the, maybe the welfare state propping them up and their reproductive success will therefore likely suffer uh, and in the material senses from material factors as well, but from social uh, status factors as well. But in Africa, Blacks are also lagging behind. In the Caribbean, minorities <coughs> are more entrepreneurial than Blacks. In Jamaica, because I live in Jamaica, the insurance sector was built by both blacks and some mulattoes, people, phenotypically white people with European admixture. They created the insurance sector along with blacks. But on average, black businesses in the Caribbean don't scale to the same extent that the white and Chinese-based businesses scale. So whenever we assess the data, Blacks are usually at the bottom of the pile, <laughs> even when the country is predominantly Black. Right. We, we, had this, we, we know of a certain phenomenon in Uganda. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar. Idi Amin, yes. Idi Amin. He chased the minorities who were more productive. Right. Yeah, yes. And today, these minorities, they are top of the social hierarchy. For example, the uh, woman who is uh, home secretary for Boris Johnson, Priti Patel, right? She's a horrible person, but <laughs> she is descended from Ugandan Indians. She's not Indians from India, right? Uh, similar situation in South Africa. Uh, the um, 
I mean, they, they had regular Jews over there, but over there, the Indians were called the Jews of South Africa and as well as the Collards of the Cape Colony. They were um, also a quote-unquote market-dominant minority. Uh, there are many, for example, Lebanese in Mexico, they are also uh, running a lot of the large-scale businesses over there, and people don't believe it when uh, when... The Latin America is full of Lebanese or Basques filling this this uh, social niche. It's all very interesting to think about these minority populations. Exactly, these parties are the norm, but on average, blacks will do better in predominantly white societies than in predominantly black societies, and this is why they're immigrating to rich white Western countries. But I get you, and I, and I also get your point on welfare. So some studies and economists like Sowell, Williams, and Peterson, they have argued that welfare disrupted the Black family, and there are merits in this argument. But people like me and you, we appreciate the science. Leftists implicitly appreciate the science because over around two years ago, when the Smithsonian magazine created that whiteness chart, people maligned the Smithsonian, but the Smithsonian was actually accurate. The nuclear family, this is a stable hallmark of the West. Delayed gratification, another feature of the West. A time culture versus an event culture, another feature of the West. Individualism, another feature of the West. And, and the premium on rationality, another feature of the West. I'm, and again, I'm not saying that only Western people can express these traits, but these traits are overly concentrated in Western society. No, so if we know, hold on, it's, if it's we so know, pro, it's so prominent that you can even see the difference between uh, Western white people and white people of Eastern Europe. Exactly. I mean, I come from Eastern Europe, and uh, to a great degree, Eastern European white people. We have, um, because we look at the West all the time and the West exerts influence on us, we will sometimes reconstruct the Western forms, but especially what you described to me as time culture versus event culture, this attitude towards time as uh, you know, a mathematical category. Uh, we are moving forward on a, on a number line as, as opposed to events happen and I was. I recently wrote some uh, something about time specifically. I'm reminded that the Romans didn't really have a year calendar. They did not count the years like we do, but they had. Uh, so they wanted to say, "Oh, this and this happened." They would say it happened in the years of the consuls. I don't know uh, Nero and Caligula, uh, but they did not numerate years. And the reign of a consul is an event. It's not, not time as a measurable uh, entity. It's, it's time as the entity itself uh, perceived, not the measure of time. And a year is a measure of time. Uh, but time is also a physical thing, which is independent of our measures of time. All right, but let, let me continue to make this quick point. So I am not in favor of the welfare state. And uh, I do believe that African-Americans can exercise potential. But let's be realistic. Based on the data and what we do know, shouldn't liberals, instead of attacking the system, just state that the welfare state may be the best solution 
to solve the problem of Black America because on average, Black Americans are not compatible in Western society. I'm just speaking based, I'm, I'm speaking primarily on the data. Obviously, some Blacks will do well, but on average, the traits that require people to succeed in Western societies are not overly concentrated in Black communities, and it could be a result of culture and genetics. So should leftists just get realistic? Uh, with, hopefully, they will get realistic, but I'm, I don't think it's going to happen. Yes, right. let me read this quote I, from the New York Times. Let me yeah. quickly read this quote. I wrote the article. It was published by Ricardo's paper in the New York Canadians. Yet the New York Times, in a recent report on anti-racism, reveals that trainer Marcus Moore thinks that Black students are punished by the standards of Western culture. Moore expounded that white culture is obsessed with mechanical time, clock time, and punishes students for lateness. This, he said is but one example of how whiteness undercuts black kids. If you want a job, be punctual. And he's agreeing that blacks are not punctual. And this is, uh, I believe me, Marcus Moore is a phenotypically black man. Mm -hmm. This is a interesting, the interesting thing is that we observe a reality, right? That black people are on average not punctual. And I'm sure that living in Jamaica... Yes, they don't respect time. They do not respect time. Like living in Jamaica, for me, is infuriating. But that's a debate for another day, but continue. Right. And uh, even I, who... I I don't see a lot of Black people in Eastern Europe. The the few Black people I have interacted with, I noticed that they have a very cavalier attitude towards being on time. This is something that we observe. Right. This is facts. Not you can you we can even do scientific studies on this, but this is part of our experience. Black people observe it too. They say it about themselves. I remember there was there is a joke on this um, American TV show from the time before fun was prohibited on American television uh, about Black Fraser. Right. Uh, there is a TV show Fraser. Now they're going to do a black version and. Uh, it's on at about 9, 9.15-ish, right? Because black people are late, so give or take 15 minutes, the show will air because it's a black show. <laughs> and there's, uh, I love, I, I, I have to admit, I love uh, the humor of American blacks. It's, uh, it's, it's a guilty pleasure because, you know, I'm called a racist, a white nationalist, a white supremacist, but I love the humor of American blacks. It's a strange thing. It's self-deprecatory. So Hmm? It is self-deprecatory. Yes, and but also when it's uh, when it makes fun of white people. So, for example, when they make fun of white people, American white people in particular, that they don't uh, eat spicy food, which is something I have noticed about American white people myself. Right, as a Eastern European, we eat spicy food. We use different spices from American blacks, but you know this is the difference we we notice. And my point is, everyone can see this. I, as a white racist, can no- can notice that you know black people are late. Black people notice that they are late, that they have a weaker conception of time. The left notices this. Uh, but if you say this, and, and like you said, that the Smithsonian published this uh, uh, this list of white stuff, whiteness, right, essential whiteness. Uh, it is the mainstream right 
which denies that this is so. They say, no, 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 no. Everyone is the same. This is all, the Democrats are the real racists <laughs> when they point these things out. Um, we can all persevere and we can all adhere to the same ideal, whereas everyone else, right? Blacks, uh, liberals. Now, where we differ, we agree on the facts, right? Uh, the, the dissident right, the left, the black with the blacks, we agree on the facts. Where we disagree is the interpretation of the facts and the moral valence. When we say, yes, punctuality is a manifestation of whiteness. It is a product of white genetics and the culture of white people and especially Western white people. Like, I will once again draw attention to the differences between Western and Eastern white people. You know, in Eastern Europe, there is, it's not so much a cavalier attitude towards that. It's, it's a discussion for another day. Uh, but uh, it's, um, yes, being on time, thinking of time as living in the clock is a feature of Western civilization. And something which is not readily replicated by black people. People have commented that uh, in Africans, the prefrontal cortex and the neocortex specifically, the part of the, this part of the brain, which is at the very front in the, in the forehead, right, right just behind the forehead, is not as well developed as in white people and Asians and other races. And this is one of the reasons why the uh, African has a weak conception of time as an entity, that the passage of time and the idea of the future is very alien to the African. Now, of course, this will be less pronounced in the African-American or the Afro-Caribbean due to the black and uh, due to the white admixture. And in the case of some Afro-Caribbeans, Asian admixture, right? but it will still be present when uh, compared to white people, right? And this is something we are going to have to learn to live with. You know, we are going to have to accept about black people if we're going to have black people in our societies, or we can take uh, movements to separate out if we find that we are incompatible to separate out the white from the black, it can be done softly as it was in segregation or uh, through the creation of so-called ethnostates, national states, a state for white people, a state for black people. Mm. But this is a, and, and this relation to time is just one factor. There are many other factors of differences between the races, which carry significant sociological, political, and economic relevance, which yes. just cannot be ignored. Yes, and let me comment on one briefly. Patience and the Comparative Wealth of Nations. There is a paper with this title. Blacks also score lower in patience and time orientation. There's a study titled Toward an Understanding of the Development of Time Preferences, Evidence from Field Experiments. This is not a biological study. It's a study done by economists, but one of the conclusions is quite seminal to our discourse. Black children relative to white or Hispanic children are more impatient. To succeed in the business world, one needs a strong orientation of time. You must think long-term. 
think about the next 10 years or next 20 years. Entrepreneurship is correlated with long-term orientation, especially opportunity-driven entrepreneurship. Blacks are impatient and they think about today and tomorrow, but not necessarily the next 10 years. And I may sound hyperbolic, but I sound this way because I can only repeat what Black people say about Blacks. This is not what I've been hearing from whites. This is what I hear from Black people about Blacks. And there is some data to corroborate the assumption. It's just like in Jamaica. You go to the ATM. I'm polite, so I will join the line. There's a long line. Someone exits the ATM. And as a polite person, I'm at the back of the line. So I'm expecting the people in front of me to move. And they don't move. So it's not unusual for me to move from the back of the line to go into the ATM because I'm a busy man. I'm always on the go. I move. So there's this concept that one can merely sit and manna will fall from heaven. No, you have to move. And I notice it with Jamaicans all the time. They don't move. They, they do not move up to their spot to the ATM. Yeah, they, they, and not just the ATM. I'm, I'm applying it more broadly to the economy and development. They don't move. They sit and wait. Sit and wait for God to work. You have to move. So I'm religious, but I'm a Calvinist. Scientific success is evidence of God's favor. You have to work. I don't. Be, I believe that because I'm religious, I do believe that God has the power to work. But for God to bless us, we have to work. You cannot just sit and wait for life to happen. That's silly. So you go. You, I, I, I may go into a restaurant, and again, there's a line, and the cashier speak. No. Do you know what's funny? When I go into the, to, into the restaurant, and this is a commentary on the poor work ethic of workers, I'm purchasing a product and the cashier is speaking to a friend and laughing. There's just no concept of business. It is, this is, a, again, this would be decried, for example, by the left that, uh, well, that this notion that business and, and uh, your family life are separate, this is uh, white, Western, and it is, it is, uh, it is, but we see it in the distant right. The distant right sees these things as good things. It's a good thing that white people have this notion of uh, punctuality and this notion of, well, now we work, now we don't work. And I, it's the most extreme in Germans. Yes. I don't know if you've interacted with Germans. No, but uh, I'm when, familiar with the manufacturing and the small business system, so I'm right. quite familiar. When Germans work, they think of nothing except work. Uh, you would like them. They do not even joke when, when they are working. But when they're not working, they do not think about work at all. Right? Uh, so I, I've been to vacations, for example, in Spain where Germans go. And uh, I, I mean, I, I try to start conversation with them. And I say, oh, I am uh, Nicholas Argilvi. I work as an attorney. I'm a, I'm a lawyer back home. And they say, oh, don't talk about work. Let's, let's drink. Let's party. Let's dance. <clears throat> we are Germans on vacation. Work does not exist. Right? And it's a very interesting thing. Germany has the highest worker productivity in Europe right? per man-hour productivity. Uh, Nicholas, are you an attorney right. in real life or is this just an example? I, 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 I'm sorry? Are you an attorney? Yes, I, I used to be. I used to be an attorney. I quit about uh, two years ago to commit one hundred percent to uh, uh, dissident politics. But okay. yeah, I, I, I'm, I still have a law degree. Um, 
and I'm actually still a member, still registered as a member of the bar association. That I forgot to do. That. I um, and so Germans, right? They have the highest um, productivity in Europe, but whereas the average European will work. 40 hours uh, per week, Germans will work 35 hours per week, right? And this is, this is, I think, a product of this culture that when they work, they will do nothing but work. So there is no procrastination, there is no lollygagging. The Germans are very extreme in their separation of work and not work, which, which I admire. Yeah, you know, me I'm, too. I, right. Because I'm a work I'm person. I'm not like that. Yeah, I, I believe in work. If if I'm at work, I'm at work. I really don't want the social talk. Sorry, Nicholas, but when it's time to work, it's time to work. So, and when it's time to do my podcast, I don't want people disturbing me any at all. Mm-hmm. When I'm writing, I just write. I really don't like people in my space bothering me. I have stuff to do, and I live in a country where work is not valued. So most of the time, so 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 so, so usually I'm I'm encountering people who don't respect work and they just end up wasting my time, and because they don't read or pay attention to anything that's serious, I'm always being bombarded with stupid questions, and I don't like stupid questions. But such is the, such such is life when you live in a silly country. <laughs> right, I'm reminded I. I Everyone should know Jordan Peterson by now, right? He's not. He's boring. He, you, he's boring. You consider him boring? Yes, I am not impressed. Are you? Not by his political ideas. They are very boring. Uh, in in the in his field of expertise in psychology, he's a little bit more interesting. Yes, as a, as I, a psychology professor, I, he's interesting, but as a public figure, he's boring. No, as a public figure, you should not follow any anyone like that. I mean, this is a person who tries to tell young people you should live like this, but then becomes hooked on drugs. And has uh, he cannot control his daughter? It's it's unbelievable. But my point is, there was a he was giving a lecture on personality, right? The human personality. And he was discussing industriousness as a psychological trait. So the propensity to work. Uh, people who are highly industrious, they have, um, uh, in economics, there is a parameter known as uh, the disutility of labor. I'm sure you've heard of yes. this. And now, people who are more industrious psychologically have a lower disutility of labor. And you, you, you can, you, I'm certain everyone knows people like this. Like, uh, for example, I know, well, it's my mother. I'm just going to say, it. I say to her, uh, aren't you thinking about your retirement? And she says to me, oh, I'm never going to retire. I'm going to work until I die because what else am I going to do with my time, <laughs> right? And when she's sick, it's not the problem that she's, uh, she's sick. The real problem is she cannot go to work because she does not know what to do with her time if she's not working. I know a lot of people like this. They have to work. They are very high in industriousness. They have a very low disutility of labor. And even if they do not have a job at the moment, they will be doing something just to, just to fill their time, right? They will be doing something productive, something smart, even though they're not, maybe not getting money for it. Uh, so the question here comes, this is a very good question, which Jordan Peterson poses. So 
how can evolution tolerate people who are low in industriousness, right? Because not the entire world is workaholics, right? Who are very high in industriousness. In fact, the vast majority of people on the planet, even people who are hard workers, right? They would prefer not to work, right? This utility of labor, even people who do work a lot and they work very hard, uh, if you give them a choice, right? And Tetris Paribus, everything else is the same. They would rather not work. And then there is a very large, very large contingent of people who are just not interested in working, even if you do reward them properly. And the answer is that a, a selection pressure environment, so an environment where working is rewarded, right? Is very rare historically. It presupposes a stable state. It presupposes a stable economic situation. It presupposes a fair, economic situation right i like i said i work in eastern europe uh you mentioned uh, i live in eastern europe you live in jamaica you mentioned you work you live in a country where work is not appreciated i also live in a country where work is not appreciated work and insight and talent they are um are just wasted into nothing <laughs> what are connections criminality uh, political concerns, corruptions, right? And Jordan Peterson here gives a very important answer. People are selected for being, uh, let's call it lazy, you know, low in industriousness. And evolution tolerates this because this, this, this situation where work is rewarded and rewarded fairly is very rare in human history. In fact, you could only say it has existed for a very short time in the West. And even today, we are seeing that we are, of course, talking about how black people cannot exist in Western society. Now, not even white people can survive in Western society. The society is now structured so unfairly that nobody, if the, insofar as they are a human being, and not part of the elite which controls the institutions can survive and reproduce. What is the big um, problem of the millennial generation? They cannot earn enough to buy a house and move out of their parents' uh, house, right? They cannot become independent. And some of the older millennials, they're now turning 40, right? This is problematic if people are 40 and they cannot afford to live independently from their parents. And uh, we, are, we are slowly returning in the West, as it is in the, the majority of the world, to a regime where work and patience and perseverance are no longer rewarded. And this is a new selection pressure, which will disrupt even the high industriousness and punctuality and all of these positive traits of white people over time. And I agree. Some time ago, I saw a foolish BuzzFeed article mocking doctrines that are usually opined by older people. But many of these precepts are indeed true. Work hard, respect your boss. And the BuzzFeed article was basically mocking these ideas that worked well several years ago and may not work well today because we live in a different culture. We live in a one. Nicholas, 
although I'm a libertarian, I respect authority. In an organization, there is a CEO, managers, and employees. There is a chain of command. But unfortunately, we live in a world where, where the chain of command is not respected. So in the 21st century, a millennial worker can leak sensitive information and be praised. This was unheard of in the past. And so I completely agree with you. It's a, it's a selection. I, selections, well, selections are usually positive because if you're selecting for a trait, it's a positive selection. So it's a positive selection with a negative effect. Evolution, evolution doesn't discriminate between yes. positive and negative. These are, right, you and I, because we believe in work, right? We, we believe in hard work. We believe in a certain type of civilization, which is the Western civilization as described by Dr. Ricardo Duchesne and others, right? We say that traits which lead to the creation of this civilization and which are selected for by this civilization as a selection pressure are, quote unquote, good, right? So a lot of people in the distant right, again, they are um, thinking about eugenics, right? And uh, eugenics comes from the Greek, which means well-born, eu, good or well Organic meaning born. So we are going to be well, uh, well born. I asked them, what is the good which you are trying to achieve, right? And they say to me, oh, this is self-evident, right? We want people who are hardworking, they're patient, everything else, right? Uh, but I say to them, we already have that in the West, and this is the civilization which is now facing its crisis. So... I'm not, I'm not saying this is not good from this civilizational standpoint. However, right, we are now seeing that the West is slowly falling in the civilizational struggle. And part of the reason is that it has an overabundance of this type of um, human being, right? This could, uh, and now we are, we are getting to a situation where the uh, evolutionary weight is shifting now we it is no longer going to select for the kind of person who is patient hardworking, punctual and all of these things industrious and conscientious but it's going to select for the other type of person who is the majority in global terms but you know, <laughs> still a minority in the, the ascent of social media people spend their time consuming Entertainment value, though I consider it to be garbage because it is neither entertainment, entertaining nor highly valuable. But I, again, I get your point completely. There's a, and I'm going to use the word negative loosely, there's a negative selection effect in the West for destructive traits. But we have been speaking about Western civilization for a while. I'm about to wrap up, but before I do so, Blacks in the dissident right, well, I don't know of any Black person who has written frequently for dissident publications. I have written for a few. And uh, American Renaissance, every now and then, will publish an article from an anonymous Black from Africa or some other anonymous Black person. But I don't know any Black person with a staple on the dissident right. Today, however, it is surmise that black conservatives can be allies of the dissident right. So when I'm looking at the comment section, people are praising Candice Owens, but I discussed the issue with 
Paul Gottfried in public and in private. And my own thesis is that West, we know it already. The West, Western civilization is different. Western political philosophy has also diverged from philosophy elsewhere. And as such, the average Black conservative is really a capitalist or a classical liberal. He's not a conservative, he's not he's not a conservative, a conservative based on how we define a conservative in the West. What is he conserving? So a, a, a white person in the West can conserve capitalism because the West institutionalized capitalism. A white, a, a white person in, in the West can conserve the philosophy of Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant, and a black person can also appreciate these doctrines. But for one to be conservative in the Western sense, he must have a particular mindset or outlook. And for the most part, what I've been observing is that Blacks in the West, they believe in classical liberalism. They are libertarians, but they're not Western conservatives. They don't really care about Burke or Kirk or Albert J. Nock or, or some forgotten obscure German philosopher. So can Blacks really be useful to the dissident right? It's a very good question, right? Because you're not only asking it about Blacks, we can say the same thing Our about... Hispanics. Say, yeah, Hispanic, Asian, Jewish conservative, because conservative is also, um, it's not just a political or economic philosophy, it's also an aesthetic outlook. Yes. Uh, this is why it's very important for people. So, for example, there is the British... A conservative Sir Roger Scruton, right? He writes, why is architecture important? Why is aesthetics in movies and, um, and visual arts and uh, literature important? Well, so this is not someone who speaks about economics or politics, although he has opinion, he had, he, he died recently. Yes. He had opinions about these subjects, but this was a person who primarily focused on the aesthetics, conservative aesthetics. And if you are, uh, I mean, you might have grown up in the West. If you're a black person, your family might have been in America for 400 years, but this is not your civilization. Not at all. You, you are living among the things built by white men. Uh, so, but, so yes, in, in that sense, I agree with you. White, uh, non-white people cannot be quote-unquote conservatives like, uh, like Sir Roger Scruton was. But more to the point, now the dissident right, because I do not think the dissident right is a conservative institution. Uh, I think we, are, we stand apart from conservatism because we understand that A, there is nothing left to conserve, <laughs> and B, maybe trying to conserve these old forms was a mistake. Maybe the uh, rot and decay we see today was always inherent in these forms that they were beautiful when they were new and they were fresh, but they are no longer fresh. And this is uh, tragic. However, even though it is specifically a movement, a, a movement of this of a specific time in a specific place, right? The West, and it is primarily concerned with the fate of Western civilization, of Western states, and white people. Uh, there are still perennial truths within the dissident right which can be useful to everyone. Yes. And people have commented, for example, and this is not a black example, it's an Asian example, 
that but the most read uh, philosopher and uh, political thinker in China today is not Karl Marx, it's Karl Schmidt. Okay, Karl all Sch- right. Right. Karl Schmidt is decisively a dissident thinker. Uh, in fact, you could see the well, the, the Western mainstream does engage with Karl Schmidt because it has to. You can find no other place on the internet which has more to say about Karl Schmidt than countercurrents.com. Yes. See, that, that's another thing. Another one of these uh, very important thinkers, um, Martin Heidegger, right? Again, the Chinese take note of what he has to say. And uh, he is, of course, claimed by the academic left. I would dispute that. Uh, So the ideas of Karl Schmitt, yes, they are particular to his time, to his place, to Germany in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, but they are applicable in China. And I have mentioned the possibility of racial separation in America and elsewhere. The American blacks are given their own state where which they run themselves. Uh, It would, of course, be the most prudent and best to organize the state according to the perennial principles and insights of the distant right. So if a black person is, uh, considers himself a thinker or a, a political organizer of the distant right, this will be the place for them. Uh, there is great Like respect. I'm a dissident libertarian. So I'm a libertarian, right. but many of my views fall out of the mainstream, even for dissident publications. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Exactly right. The, there is a, It's not. It's not. A, there are no uh, hard differences. It's a. It's a spectrum, right? I am. Oh, I, I used. I used to call myself a libertarian for a long time, right? I. I used to be a libertarian before I moved on to, you know, more authoritarian uh, ways of thinking. Because well, I think that that is the way to go for now. But you know, we'll agree to disagree for now. But yes, that is my uh, position. White, it's not just a sport for white people. Everyone can join in. Uh, we are, of course, fighting in the globalist left. Yes. A global enemy. And the struggle will, of necessity, be global. It will not be just in one place. It will probably not be just in our time either. It's going to be, I, I predict, a long-term uh, struggle the, when young people ask me, how long are we going to do this for? I say to them, at least 50 years. Yeah, so I don't request validation from people on the dissident right, but some dissident bloggers need to be smart. There are people in the movement who are actually upset, rem- remarkably upset that I write for dissident publications. And they will say, okay, people... In the dissident right, they're being led by the nose of Lipton, whatever that should mean. But yes, those stupid people don't add any value to the dissident right. Well, if you if you had tried to insinuate yourself into a leadership position, I would understand. But if you're just writing for publications, uh, I, I, I think that we need to hear a plurality of voices, right? Because, uh, of course, I'm saying this as someone who is first and foremost, an intellectual, not a political organizer. Yes. Because in, when we are intellectuals just writing or making you know, podcasts, we have, uh, 
we are freer. We are like children. We can play with whomever we want. Uh, we can. We are really just playing with these ideas. The political organizers have questions about loyalty, right? Because a political organization is essentially a military organization. In in the Schmittian worldview, there is no difference, and loyalty is very important to them. And these are people who consider blood kinship and the blood kinship and uh, represented by ethnic kinship to be essential to loyalty. However, yes, I agree that uh, you know a black dissident writing for distant publications is not not ca- not cause for alarm. <laughs> a lot of people will do object to Kandan's Owens. But she's not she serious. Herself. Yeah, she inserts herself as in a leadership position. This is the objection of a lot of people. Uh, to but but Candice is not serious. And Candice is mainstream. She's not dissident and she's not serious. So I don't care for Candice Owens. She's a comedian. She's a business savvy comedian. I give her credit there for that. A, uh, she has also been involved in the project to uh, dox, to reveal the identities of anonymous people online. Yeah, because so, she was a left-wing activist at one point. I, very. This is a very suspicious person, if you're asking yeah, Exactly. Me. Like, Conservative Inc. is a bunch of grifters, and the upcoming Black conservatives, many of them are not different. Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, and the late Elizabeth Wright were on the the real right, but many Blacks are not really on the right. How many Black people read Paul Gottfried? How many Black people read Sam Francis? They're not on the dissident right. It's a, people have commented that I, I, I read this, uh, this kind of comment at least once a week. If I were a Black person in America and I really needed money, I would just uh, put on a MAGA hat and start uh, exactly. recording myself speaking. <laughs> Because Americans are so gullible and there's always a demand for garbage in the American political space. It's it's a grift. Most Black people are not criticizing BLM. So if you criticize BLM, this makes you logical. But if you do it as a Black person, oh my God, you're revolutionary. It's it's something I have noticed. Uh, It is a part of the culture, right, in the West that... um, white political organization and white political interests are illegitimate, right? This is something I've written extensively about, that uh, it's essentially illegal in many European countries to even express identitarian ideas as a white person, right? It's not illegal to express them as, as a Jewish or Black or Asian person. So, for example, I cannot, we would not be having this conversation as freely if I were living in Germany, right? I was having a show with the Millennial Wolves some time ago, and I forgot that he lives in, in the United Kingdom, and I got a little too free with the things I was saying. Yes. We had to, we had to, you know, he had to mute me. We had to start over. It was not pleasant. It's um, so... But this is also present in America. It's not illegal to organize as white people in America, but the cultural taboo against it is so much stronger in America. Yes. And, and people le- are psychologically in, in, enslaved by this. Just let me finish my train of thought. I'm sorry if I'm long-winded. And so what they do is they, they find black people who will implicitly 
uh, advance these white interests, these interests of white people, such as, for example, the defeat of critical race theory in schools. Um, and they will, they will act, or they will act as uh, tokens who absolve this essentially implicitly pro-white political movements of, uh, of the accusation of racism. And I even see it among the dissident right, right? It's not as pronounced, but even among explicit white nationalists, they're always looking for that elusive alliance with maybe the black nationalists, you know, the Malcolm X, Mar yes. Marcus Garvey types, or they're looking for the based Hispanics, the castizo uh, futurism. Uh, it, it's, it's, no, but, um, but, it's very interesting. To but do you know what's funny? I, I write for several publications and I sent a, an article to a publication once on IQ and the writer said, we're, we're trying to move away from the discourse on IQ and I was writing as a black person. So I get your point clearly. Even on the dissident, people are looking for fiery blacks who are not towing the political line, but people, but at the same time, people are not actually looking for a black who is the mentee of a Paul Godfrey. They, they, they don't want a real black dissident. Mm. <laughs> no. They don't want a real black dissident. There is a, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, there is a blogger who goes by the Z-Man. Oh, and, the Z-Man? Yeah, From Takiman? Z-Man of the Z-Blog. Yes, but he also has his own blog, the okay. Z-Blog, right? And he has been on... Uh, 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 Koto Gottfried, right, with Professor yes. Cole, uh, Paul Gottfried and uh, is it Miguel Koto? No, it's, it's Joseph Koto. So I'm usually a very guest and we're planning to do a show soon. Uh, excellent. I, I will watch that. So, sorry, there is a boxer called Miguel Koto and I always get them confused. Yeah. Anyways, um, the Z-Man, he, uh, he is white, of course, but he grew up in rural Virginia, right? And he grew up around a lot of white people, black people, because he grew up poor. So he he observes that, uh, and of course he lives in Baltimore, uh, which which he calls Lagos on the Chesapeake because it's full of black people and has a very high crime rate. And uh, he observes that uh, basically, if you want to hear some really hateful things about black people, you should go talk to black people. Exactly. <laughs> right. Because, and, and this is the, you, you have now told me about everything that goes on in Jamaica. Yeah, so a quick point. I, I have a friend. I have a friend. She's very brilliant. She studied at an elite school in Europe. She's, she travels. She's a brilliant woman. And this is someone, whenever we speak, who will look at me in the eyes and say, black people are just a waste. I don't care. And she's well educated, and she's like, I, I don't. I care. would never say that. I, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a literal white nationalist. I would never yeah, say she, that. She, 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 <laughs> she will literally say like, I don't need Richard Lynn to tell me that blacks are different from whites or that they're higher in psychopathy. I, she knows. Right. She's like, I don't care. <laughs> right. So then, this is the average black person. She's highly right. educated. She's a highly educated black. Yeah, yes, woman. but 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 the average black person in America, or at least the way the, the Z-Man presents it is aware of all of these things, right? They don't want to, for example, if a, white, if a black, per, black guy wants to work, he does not want to have a black boss no. because the black boss will treat him very badly. He wants to have a white boss. If he needs work done on his house, he wants a white repairman, right? Not a black repairman. 
because otherwise the, the house will fall on his head. And it's just like black people are the most race realist. Exactly. Uh, the, so if you just got the average black person talking about race differences in America, he would be sound. He would sound more racist than the entire distant right. And, and this is where these all these. So uh, I am a racist. Black, was... <laughs> Yeah, so according to that standard, I'm a racist. Right, right. <laughs> we are all racist by the standard, but just by acknowledging the differences uh, and saying that, of course, they are natural or that they are inherent in biology. Uh, the, uh, the left will acknowledge differences. This is something that uh, maybe I don't respect them for, but I will at least grant them but they do not allow you to conceptualize them as anything except the fault of white people, right? Whereas the right, the mainstream right, will completely ignore them, right? And this, right. Is, this is something... Mm, yes. This is something to think about. Yes, but like, I, for me, I don't relish the idea that I am the only black person writing on this issue. Well, J-Man wrote a lot, but I, I don't have a problem with competition and I don't have a problem with other black people writing on the issue. But it becomes a bit disconcerting when so few blacks have the bravery and the eloquence to impartially assess the issue. That's my problem. I don't have a problem being the only black because I don't fear competition. But it's an issue when literally one or two blacks are speaking about these matters properly. That's an issue because when 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 more when blacks refuse to comment on the issue, it really suggests that maybe their IQs are lower. Because if they were intelligent, they would have approached it at at a mat, on a mature level. So it's yeah. really perpetuating the myth that blacks are uneducated. So when 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 a black person reads an article on racial differences in IQ and upstairs respond like a madman, he's just perpetuating the narrative that Blacks are emotional, hysterical, and unread. There's also, I would say, the factor that the primary struggle of the, of the um, uh, so for example, the struggle of are, are we egalitarians or will we acknowledge uh, race differences? or, you know, the, the struggle of the dissident, right, all of these things, they are a struggle between white people, right, between white dissidents, white conservatives, and white liberals. This is the struggle. This is the, uh, uh, so this is not, maybe the black person is looking at this, okay, this is three groups of white people fighting. Maybe I should not get involved. Now, some black people will get maybe not involved involved because they understand that what is a stake might influence them as well right because it's western civilization which was built by white people but will influence their lives as well or maybe they do it just out of uh, intellectual uh, interest so for example i i do things sometimes i i um, involve myself in dialectics, which are which you know have no bearing on my life, but I find them interesting. I find them. Uh, I, I do it to satisfy my intellectual curiosity. But we cannot discount this factor that this question of racial egalitarianism is primarily a status struggle between three 
groups of primarily white people, you know, white liberals, white conservatives, and white dissidents. All right, so Nicholas, wow. I am really enjoying this discussion, but I have to wrap up immediately. But before we do so, and for this question, you have to be brief. We're actually going to laugh. Nick Fuentes, people on the dissident right keep talking about him, but Nick Fuentes does not care about this about the dissident right. Is he relevant? I recently wrote uh, something about Nick Fuentes. Yes, on about the turncoat. Right about the. Uh... Uh, alliance between uh, uh, America First, which is Nick Fuentes' group, and Gab, which is the alternative to Twitter. And I criticized very heavily Andrew Torbach, who is the, uh, the CEO of Gab, for donating money to America First. Yeah. Uh, I, I used to like Nick Fuentes. I used to listen to his show. He's a very charismatic fellow. Yeah, another comedian. Yes, and he's actually very funny, right? He's not unfunny. Uh, when he's actually dealing with, and, and even his political positions, they're not very different from mine. My problem with him is that he like he acts in a way which is not conductive to fostering a good political organization. And he is also very strongly anti-intellectual. Yeah, and he needs to. Um, another issue with Fuentes is that this then right is a movement, and many serious political movements are masculine. If you want to be taken seriously by people, stop bashing women. You can bash feminism. I don't have a problem bashing feminism or critiquing it or even critiquing women, but the incel narrative that's not going anywhere. With the caveat, I will say that we need to in address the problem of um, no, feminism and, it, and how it leads to the incel phenomenon. I want to approach men who are incels with compassion because they are really victims of modernity. Uh, I will recommend listeners and you read F. Roger Devlin's Sexual Utopia. All right, and power. I'm going to get it. I'm familiar with, with Roger Devlin. His book reviews are excellent. Right. So I'm going to get that book. But yeah, the, yeah. the America First is, co- is comedic. Fuentes, as you, as, you, as you said earlier, is a funny guy. He disavowed white nationalists, uh, white nationalists some time ago. And he doesn't really care much for the listening right. But people on listening right seem to like him. I, I think that they're wasting um, their time. I will, I will, I will disagree with that. Um, the reaction to Andrew Torba donating money to Fuentes' organization was very strong. Uh, in fact, I, I had an idea that people had lost patience with Nick Fuentes, but just this outpouring of, of judgment for him from the distant right, um, which I saw in the past, Two, three, four days is. I I knew he. I knew people were out of patience with him, but I had no idea just how much they were out of patience with him. Uh, and so, no, I would not say that the broader dissident right likes Nick Fuentes. I think he's worn out his welcome. I think he has shown himself to be, uh, well, dangerous to the cause. <laughs> I can say. Yes, I agree, but. As I said earlier, I am wrapping up. Speaking to you was great, but unfortunately, I have to go. So bye, Nick.